Our sermon this morning is on 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2. We're going to be looking at the story of David and Solomon. Now, uh, before we jump in, so we got a lot of we got a lot of text to cover, a lot of ground to cover. So it's not on the slides. So if you, you so get a get a Bible. If you brought a Bible, bring it. If you didn't bring a Bible, then now's where we're going to have to we're going to have to dust off the the pew Bibles in front of you. You can find 1 Kings on page 260 because um, we're going to work through several yeah quite quite a bit of, of real estate in chapters one and one and two, and um, yeah the easiest way to do it I thought was to to do it with regular Bibles. Before we do though. I want to set First and Second Kings uh, into their context in the, the overall kind of unfolding message of Scripture and kind of help us to understand their, their significance, their, the utility that they have in the, the Bible's story. Because you read them, what we're going to see, you read them, and they are, uh, you know, it's a, 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 a series, of, it's, it's a historical account, really, of, of uh, King Solomon and then the kings that followed him in the northern, uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and then the prophets that kind of emerged uh, to speak truth to power and to kind of declare God's word to the kings and to the people of, of God. So they're an historical account, um, but we can best understand the purpose that First and Second Kings are intended to play in Scripture by kind of setting them in their context of the unfolding story of Scripture. So we start with God creating the world, God creating humanity. Promptly, right, two chapters later, humanity promptly sins against God, evokes the wrath of God, finds themselves in need of a savior, a redeemer, right? As early as Genesis chapter 3, humanity is waiting for someone to redeem them, reconcile them back to the God that they have been alienated from. Humanity is waiting for someone to set things right, set things back the way that they were meant to be when the world was created, Soon after, we meet Abraham. Uh, Abraham God, God kind of, the, the, the focus zooms in and narrows in on uh, Abraham. God promises Abraham that he's going to be the father of the people of God, that the, the Redeemer, the Savior, the Messiah that humanity is waiting for is ultimately going to come from uh, the, the people of Abraham, the, the nation that is kind of born out of, of Father Abraham. So it's starting to sh- take shape, a little bit of clarity by Genesis chapter 12. By the second book of the Bible, Exodus, uh, God's people have uh, they've made their way to Egypt. They went there to uh, find food in a time of famine, um, and they're there. But then after a few generations come and go, uh, the people of God find themselves enslaved under the, the brutal hand of Pharaoh. So enter Moses, who then leads the people of God out, out of Egypt through the Red Sea to Sinai. They receive the law of God into the wilderness. Moses' successor, Joshua, brings the people of God into the promised land. And they're starting to settle. They're, they're under the leadership of um, these kind of uh, informal leaders called judges uh, that, that kind of God calls them to lead in the, the new land. And that works for a little while. But pretty soon, God's people get restless. First Samuel chapter 8, they say, Now appoint for us a king uh, to, to judge us like all the other nations have. And God says, listen, you... You realize that in demanding a king, like all the other nations have, you are effectively rejecting me as your king. I'm your king. I brought you out of Egypt 
So if you're saying, we want to be like all the other nations, we want to have a king like all the other nations, you're saying that I'm not good enough, you're saying that you would rather have a human king instead of me. And they say, no, there shall be a king over us so that we might be like all the nations. And our king will judge us, and he will go out before us, and he will fight our battles. So the people of God uh, request, rather demand... They have a king. They want a king that's impressive and strong and brave and powerful. They want a king that can galvanize all of the people and lead them into battle, right? All the other nations pick their best and most impressive man, and he's their king. We want to take our best and most impressive man and make him our king so that we can kind of be his image bearers. We can kind of, you know, follow him and be, uh, you know, people that are, you know, he's the one that we look to and he's the one that we follow. And God's saying, I'm that guy, and they say, we want someone else, and so they put Saul in charge. Saul is the biggest, tallest, strongest man in the country. It says he's a head taller than anyone else. So he's standing, you know, a foot taller than anyone else in the entire country. They install Saul as king. Saul promptly drops the ball. He worships other gods. Um, God rejects him as king. And so, God says, I've got another king coming after Saul. God has a man named David, who at this point is a little boy named David. He says, you know, Saul was impressive. Saul was big and strong. David is a little boy. David is the youngest of all of his siblings. David is not only uh, not the most likely person in Israel to install as king, David is not the most likely person in his own family to be installed as king. He's the youngest of, uh, of eight brothers. And so... Um, so God, God says, you know, man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart, and so we install King David. And First and Second Samuel are largely the story of King David. I mean, it's the story of Saul, but then uh, David, kind of towards the end of First, Sam- First Samuel, into Second Samuel, we see David fighting Goliath. We see David ascending to the throne. Right, Saul's kingdom is weakening, and David's kingdom is rising. So they're kind of. Uh, David, you know, becomes the king. He leads Israel through these military conquests. He expands the borders of Israel. He, you know, uh, defeats the enemies of Israel. Everything's going great. And then David falls into, uh, you know, egregious sin. He um, commits adultery. And uh, he, he sees a woman named Bathsheba bathing. He has her brought to him. He forces himself on her. She gets pregnant. And then to cover up the whole thing, he murders uh, her husband, Uriah. So it's a low point. It's a dark moment in David's life. Then as we get closer to the end of 2 uh, Samuel, uh, there's a conspiracy from uh, Absalom, which is one of David's sons. So one of David's sons, who presumably might be the one who is going to take over as the king of Israel in time, he gets antsy. He gets restless. He says, I don't want to wait anymore. I want to be king right now. He tries to kill his father, David, and take his throne. David has to run off into exile. Eventually, he makes his way uh, back. Absalom is killed in the process. We're going to see some details of that uh, as we kind of reflect back on, on the story, stories that, that inform what we look at here in First Kings 1 and 2. That's David's legacy. Right? He's a flawed man, but, but on the whole, he's a righteous man. He's a godly man. He repents when he sins. He trusts in, in God. And David, when we pick up in 1 Kings, is old. He's an old man, and he's about to kind of figure out what's going to happen. What's the post-David 
nation of Israel going to look like? And that's what we're going to see take shape in 1 Kings 1 and 2. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to work our way through. I'm not going to read it because it's too much, but we're going to read it in large chunks as we go, as we go through. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Your word that stands forever, right? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever and forever. So Lord Jesus, we pray that you would take your eternal word that stands forever and that you would use these next few minutes to plant that word deep in us and use it to change us and make us more like like Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. So again, if you're using a pew Bible, page 260, top left, and we're just going to, I'll try to kind of give you verse, uh, verse markers as we work our way through. It says, Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. He's old. He's like, can't even get out of bed. His strength is leaving him. They think he's about to die. Verse 2, Therefore his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king. Let her wait on the king and be in his service, and let her lie in your arms that my king, that my lord the king may be warm. So the idea is, David's old. We know what might w- wake him up, perk him up, get his blood flowing a little bit. Let's get a young, you know, beautiful supermodel and kind of let her lie down with him, right? They're, they're they're, they're anticipating that David is maybe going to, you know, sleep with this, with this young woman. Verse 3, they sought a beautiful young woman. Her name was Abishag, the Shunammite. They brought her to the king. Verse 4, the, king was, or the woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king, and she attended to him, but the king knew her not. So, yeah, that kind of is an is a innuendo there. It's saying that this woman came in uh, intending to be, or the, the, the expectation was that they were going to have relations. She's going to be a concubine of the king, but the king does not sleep with her. Either he's too old or he's not interested or he's not, not able to. Whatever the reason, uh, it's enough that in verse 5 we see that it kind of gives uh, David's other son, Adonijah. So Absalom has already tried to conspire against David and kill him and take his throne. And now his brother, Adonijah, is like, I've seen all I need to see. David is an old man. He's not, you know, able to, to lead anymore based on his kind of being on the verge of death. And so Adonijah, the son of Haggith, uh, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. All right? So now uh, Adonijah's thinking, all right, I'm going to ascend to the, to the throne. I'm going to gather people around me um, that are going to help me become, uh, be, become king, right? So he gets, Joab is the, the long-time running head of David's army. He's the commander of David's armies. Uh, Abiathar is the priest, but these guys kind of represent David's uh, old guard, right? These guys are like, they've been with David for a long time. They're kind of, they represent the, the old regime, as it were. Um, and so uh, Adonijah says, let's have a Let's have, a par- let's have a coronation party, as it were. He's basically having a big public party that says one of two things. Either one, David made me the king, and so I'm going to celebrate the fact that David made me the king. Or he's saying, two, David is so old and so weak that he can't stop me from becoming the king. I'm bigger, I'm stronger, and so I'm now the king whether he likes it or not. Verse 9, so 
he sacrificed sheep and oxen and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. And he did not invite, he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. So there's people that are conspicuously left off the guest list, one of which is Solomon, the son of David, that, that David told, you're going to be the next king. Right? So of all the brothers, uh, you know, Solomon is the one, he's not invited. Uh, Nathan the prophet is not invited. Zadok, the priest, is not invited. Benaiah, uh, one of the mighty men of David, is not invited. And these guys that aren't invited all represent kind of the, the new guard, the new regime. They're, they're people that have been uh, brought into David's inner circle more recently than uh, Joab and Abiathar, the guys who have been there a long time. So it's almost like as Adonijah is kind of getting his coup together, he says, let me get uh, you know, the people that are most inner circle now but kind of the new guard, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to, they're probably loyal to David. I'm going to get these other guys that maybe see that they're being edged out a little bit, Joab and Abiathar. Verse 11, Then Nathan the prophet said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you some advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say, Did you you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, me, Bathsheba, did you not promise me, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah the king? Nathan is saying, you Bathsheba, go in and say that. And then while you're there, while you're speaking with him, I'll come in and confirm your words. In verse 15, so Bathsheba went in to the king in his chamber. And now the king was very old, and Abishag, the Shunammite, was attending to him. And Bathsheba bowed low and paid homage to the king and said, what do you, or the king said, what do you desire? And Bathsheba said, my lord, you swore to your servant. You swore to me that my son Solomon shall, shall reign after you and sit on your throne." And now Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, do not know it. He sacrificed oxen and cattle and sheep. He's invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, Joab the commander of the army. He invited all the old guard to kind of surround him and kind of recognize him as the new king. But he didn't invite me. He didn't invite Solomon. And now the eyes of all of Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of the king after him. Everyone is looking to you, David, saying, Who is the the guy that you chose? Because Adonijah is saying it's him, but we're not sure. So why don't you tell us who it is? Verse 22, while she was still speaking, Nathan the prophet came in and he told the king, or yeah, they said, hey, here's Nathan the prophet. And Nathan said, verse 24, my lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and sit on my throne? Because he's gone down, sacrificed all these animals and invited the king's sons. And behold, they're eating and drinking and saying, long live King Adonijah. Verse 26, but me, your servant, Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he hasn't invited him. The new guard, the presumptive next king, and the closest you know, people to, to King David, we've been, uh, we have not been Invited. Verse 27, has this thing been brought about by, by my lord the king? And have you not told your servants who should sit on the throne after him? So David's old, and he may or may not have been aware of this situation, but he's aware now, and so now he's alive enough to respond in verse 28. The king answered, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, 
he shall sit on my throne in my place, even so I will do this day. So King David said, uh, call me, Z- verse 32, call me Zadok the priest, call me Nathan the prophet, call me Benaiah of Jehoiada, right? Call me the new guard, the people that are, that I've insulated, you know, around me recently. And he said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon ride in on my own mule, the royal mule, and have him bring him down. Uh, verse 34, let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint the king over Israel. The trumpet will blow and say, long live King Solomon. Adonijah is not the king, Solomon's the king. Then you shall come up after him, and you shall sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place, and I have appointed him ruler over Israel and over Judah. So what's kind of being set up here is uh, Adonijah has Joab, the head of David's armies. Adonijah has um, Abiathar, the priest, but David is saying, take Benaiah. He's kind of like Joab 2.0, like the next version of Joab, and take Take Zadok, he's kind of like Abiathar 2.0, the next version of, uh, of, of uh, Abiathar. Right? So, so every traitorous person that Adonijah has gathered himself, uh, take a good, loyal person who, who's you know, loyal to me, to David, and to my will, take them, and you'll kind of have uh, a competing faction as it, as it will. Verse 38, so Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah of Jehoiada, went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule. There, Zadok the priest took a horn of oil and anointed Solomon. They blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! All the people went up after him, playing on the pipes, rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. So, there's a huge, so, so Solomon says, You, Adonijah, you're going to have your party celebrating you as king under false pretenses. I'm going to have my own party. I'm going to have my own uh, head of the armies. I'm going to have my own priest. I'm going to have my own prophet. It's like two neighbors throwing a party, right, where they're both trying to play the music louder than the other party so that they can kind of drown out uh, the other one. Verse 41, Adonijah and all the guests who were there heard and they finished feasting. And they say, what is this uproar in the city? What does it mean? Verse 43, they answered, Our Lord the king has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the... Right? So, so David made Solomon the king. And Solomon has with him the new guard. The new and improved version of Joab and of Abilene. All the guys we have, they got better, newer guys. I think maybe this party over here with Adonijah was not blessed by King David. I think maybe we're participating in a coup, right? And not necessarily the, the, the transfer of power that was intended by the, the king. So everyone at Adonijah's party is getting a little bit worried. Verse 49, then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose and they all went their own way. We're out of here. We're going to go home. We don't want to have any part of this, what, what is looking like a, a, a royal, you know, like, a, like a, a palace coup, right? They're trying to kind of figure out who's going to be the next king, and we would rather, you know, not be a part of that. Let's, let's step back, see which way the wind blows, see who, let's see who wins, and then that's going to be the guy that we back, rather than picking a horse now when it's not clear which one's going to win. Verse 50, but Adonijah feared Solomon, and he arose, and he went, and he took horns of, uh, took hold of the horns of the altar. This is a custom in the ancient Near East. If someone's about to kill you, uh, uh, the movie Pirates of the Caribbean, um, they, if you're about, the pirates are about to kill you, and they'd be like, 
par- I invoke the rule of parlay, which means like you can't kill me. You have to take me to your captain of your ship, and then I want a, a fair hearing. That's it, right? If you're about to get killed, uh, you know, if, if, if things are heating, you can run and you can grab hold of the horns of the altar, and it's like pause. Ever in simmer, you know, we have to hear, before this guy gets killed, we have to hear him out. We have to appeal to the higher, you know, authority to see if he's going to die, that kind of thing. It's mentioned in passing in Exodus chapter 21, verse 14, uh, but it was a custom, and Adonijah says, I'm going to avail myself of that custom. He runs, takes hold of the horns of the altar. He's kind of saying, you got me. I was trying to become the next king against the will of David, our father, against the will of Solomon. And so uh, you're probably going to come and kill me. I know this looks bad, but uh, let's just take it easy. Let's not do anything. Let's not do anything hasty. Verse 51, it was told to Solomon... Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, and he has laid hold of the horns of the altar. And he said, Please tell Solomon to swear that he will not kill me. If he'll show himself a worthy man, then, uh, and, and not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. Oh, Solomon responds, If he will show himself a worthy man, then not one of his hairs will fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So Solomon says, Tell him to come out of the, uh, away from the altar. Uh, uh, if, he's, if he, you know, takes it, if he just relaxes and kind of, calls off his his coup, then I won't kill him. But if he keeps messing with me, I'm going to have him killed. And he comes to Solomon, and Solomon says to him, go to your house. So Adonijah goes home, Solomon goes home, Solomon's now the king, everything is all all set. We're starting to kind of, it's clear who the next king is going to be, at least for now, and Solomon is ascending toward the throne. Then we start in chapter 2. At this point, David is straight up on death's door, right? He's like, literally, bring in right, the godfather, right? Like, bring in my son. You know, let me give him my, my final parting words of exhortation. When David's time has drawn near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep, char- keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way and walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall never lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David is saying to Solomon, Here's my charge. If you do nothing else the rest of your life, if you care at all, anything about what I want from you and for your life, this is it. Be strong. Be a man. Be godly. Walk with God. Read his word. Obey his word. Keep his law. God promised me, King David, that if we, if I and my kids keep his law, then he's going to keep us on the throne of Israel. He's going to reign over his people in Israel through me and through my descendants, through my lineage, the line of David. So, so be a godly man from any father to any son, right? This is, this is wise counsel. Be strong, be a man, trust God, walk with God and obey God. Take God at his word that those who trust in him, he will, will bless them and draw near to them. That's kind of the general the general instructions that David gives to Solomon as he's about to die, and then he gives some specific personal uh, instructions coming up in verses 5 and following. Some old vendettas are coming out. Some, you know, 
some old grudges that have never quite been addressed and never quite healed. He says, moreover, you know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me. This is Joab, the guy who is who, was, who Adonijah kind of brought into his inner council to say, you be the head of my armies uh, and instead of, you know, David or Solomon. You kind of come with me. He says, you know what Joab did? How he dealt with two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Therefore, act according to your wisdom. Do whatever you want to do, Solomon, but... Do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. Down to Sheol means the, the grave. And so, Joab, you can read first, first and Second Samuel, you can kind of read and get more uh, details on Joab. The long and short of it is uh, the first guy, Abner, that he's referencing. You can read about that in Second Samuel chapters 2 and 3. But basically, uh, Abner is the commander uh, of Saul's army. Um, I'm sorry, Joab is the commander of Saul's army. Wait, yeah. Joab is the commander of David's army. Abner is the commander of Saul's army. They're fighting, right? Saul is resisting. David's kind of ascending to the throne. But Saul himself and his kind of kingdom is weakening. And so during their battle together, uh, Joab is the commander of David's army. And Abner is the commander of Saul's army. And Joab's brother is in his army. He's chasing after Abner to fight him. So Joab's the commander. Joab's brother is kind of another soldier in the army. Joab's brother is chasing after Abner. And Abner is literally like running away from him. And he looks behind him. He sees Joab's brother chasing him. He's like, stop chasing me. Please stop. Don't make me kill you is what he's he's like. Don't make me kill you. I can and I will. I don't want to because I know your brother Joab and I don't want him to be mad at me. So go find another guy and kill him and take his stuff. He literally says, go find another person to kill. Just don't kill me. And, and Joab's brother is like, no, dude, you're the, you're the ranking guy. You're the guy that I want. I want to kill you, and I want to take, you know, your stuff off of you. And, Ab, and Joab's brother won't stop chasing Abner, so Abner kills him. It's like a backhanded, like, he's running, and he, like, takes his spear, and he does one of these things. So he kills Joab's brother in the heat of battle. Now, shortly thereafter, Abner switches sides. Abner looks, and he says, okay, Saul is a loser. Saul is going down. Saul's uh, kingdom is going down. David is the winner. David's kingdom is going up. So I'm going to get off of this sinking ship and get on to this like one that that stock is rising. So he goes to, so Abner goes to David and says, I know I've been leading the fight against you, but I want to switch. I want to be on your team. And David's like, great, sure. Like uh, more, the more the merrier. But Joab goes to David and is like, this dude just killed my brother. So I don't want him, he, I, A, I don't want him potentially taking my spot as the number one guy in the army. And plus, he just killed my brother. We don't want, he's probably a spy, David. And David's, I don't think he's a spy. He's going to be on our team. And Joab's like, fine, whatever. Joab, behind David's back, Joab sends word to Abner and says, yeah, come, I, let's, let's talk for a minute. And so Abner's like, you know, I guess Joab like wants to clear the air. Or maybe David has something that he told Joab to tell me. I don't know. So David comes, a- Abner comes. And uh, Joab kills Abner in cold blood in peacetime. Word gets back to David, and he's like, and this is where it's literally like out of the Godfather. Like, if you're, you know, like in in the the mob politics, like if you're a made man in the mafia, then no one is allowed to kill you. There's like five, there's five families. And then the heads of the five families get together, and they're like, 
you know, we might have territory, little squabbles or whatever, but like no one can kill anyone in my family unless I, unless the king, the, the king's, like the, the fathers authorize it together. So David's like, you can't kill Abner. I, Abner was a guest, right? He, I, I was telling him that he was okay. You killed him without my authorization. And so David literally says, Abner's blood is not on my hands. Abner's blood is not on Israel's hands. Abner's blood is on Joab's hands. He acted in his own authority, and I did not condone it. That is not okay. Fast forward to the next guy, Amasa. That's in 2 Samuel 17 through 20. So about 12, 15 chapters later. Amasa uh, is Joab's cousin. So now this kind of helps you see a little more insight into Joab and his character and kind of how willing he is to do violent, bad things to people that are even blood-related to him. They're cousins. And Joab's been the, the commander of David's army for a long time. And now David is kind of flirting with the idea of installing uh, Amasa, Joab's cousin, as the commander instead of Joab. And so Joab, again, he kind of pulls the same thing. He's like, Amasa, come here. Let's, like have, a, let's have a little meeting off the books. He's got a concealed weapon underneath his cloak. No one knows that it's there. And he kind of grabs him and he kisses him and hugs him and says, hey, how's it going? Pulls out the concealed weapon, stabs him, kills him. Joab's a, Joab's a murderer. He's a violent man. He's a murderer. If you make him mad, he'll kill you. If he thinks that you represent a threat to his authority, his office, his status, he will kill you. And so here's David telling his son Solomon, that dude is a killer. He's a, he's a murderer. He murdered one too many people under my watch without my authority. I want you, Solomon, to kill him. Verse 7, but deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite. Let them be among those who eat at your table. For such loyalty, they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. So remember, Absalom was the one who, uh, one of David's sons who was going to have a coup and try to kill David and take his throne. David's running away from Absalom for his life. And as he's running, he runs into Barzillai. And Barzillai's like, hey, come on in, take a load off, have something to eat. Stay a little bit. I won't tell anyone that you're here. You can be safe. You can relax. You can replenish. You can refresh. And so David's like, that guy is a good guy. So be nice to him. And all of his sons, all of his family, be nice to them. Welcome them. So kill Joab. Be merciful to Barzillai and his family. Verse 8. Also with you, there's a guy named Shimi of Gera, of the Benjamite from Bahurim who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. Uh, when he came down to meet me at Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death by the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to death, to the grave. So this is the same thing as, so when he's running from Absalom, and he runs into Barzillai, who says, come on in. Like, be refreshed, have some food, have some, have some supplies. He also runs into Shimmy, who, Shimmy's a jerk. I mean, you can read, uh, so he's mostly in 2 Samuel 16, but he's, he's a scoundrel. And so he sees King David on the run for his life, and it says he starts hurling curses at him. You're, a, you're this, you're that, four-letter words, right? You're a bad person. And not only is he hurling curses, he's hurling stones at him. So Shimmy is like throwing stuff at David. He like is making sport of the fact that this King David is on the, the run. David's bodyguards that are with him go to kill Shimmy right there on the spot. They're like, you don't. 
And David's like, no, don't. He's not worth it. Just let, you know, he's an idiot. So we're just going to go away. We're going to go, you know, f- find shelter with people like Barzillai. We're not going to worry about guys like Shimei. Well, later in 2 Samuel 19, three chapters later, David is back in power. The conspiracy, the, the, the coup from Absalom has been put down. Now David's in charge. And all of a sudden, Shimei is like, may I call, like, hey, my bad. I, that, I probably shouldn't have sell that stuff. Probably shouldn't have thrown those rocks at you and your guys. So uh, please be merciful to me. Please don't kill me. David says, I won't kill you. I promised you back in chapter 16 I won't kill you, and I haven't. I'll promise you again in verse 19 that I won't. But in the back of his mind, David's like, I still know he's a jerk. I still know that he, I promised I wouldn't kill him. So he says to Solomon, you know what to do. You know what you ought to do with him, right? Like, you, you, are, you're, you're, you know what to do with, with Shimei. That guy needs, needs to go. And then verse 10, David slept with his fathers. He was buried in the city of David. He reigned 40 years over Israel, 7 in Hebron, 33 in Jerusalem. And Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and the kingdom was firmly established. So now Solomon's dead. Oh, I'm sorry, David is dead. Solomon's the king. We're ready to move on, right? Everything, it, it seems like we're all set. And then up, pat, back up pops Adonijah, the guy from chapter 1, in verse 13. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and said, uh, and so Bathsheba says, do you come peacefully? Because, you know, last time you were trying to become king, and I bet that if you did, if you were successful, you would have had me killed, and you would have had my son Solomon killed. So you and I aren't really on good terms here. He says, no, I come peacefully, everything's fine. She's like, all right, speak, verse 15. You know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. And now I have one request to make of you, my brother's mother, who is now the king. Please don't refuse me. And she said, speak. And he said, please ask King Solomon. He won't refuse you because you're his mom. Please ask him to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. And Bathsheba says, all right, I'll ask, I'll ask Solomon for you. This is not... It's not like, this is not an ordinary request. This, it's not like Adonijah just like saw Abishag and was like, she's cute. I think I want to marry her. This is like, he's like the one thing you did not do in the ancient near. There's a lot of things you didn't do, right? Because kings had a lot of power and they could kill people pretty much without, you know, without having to answer for it very much. So a lot of things you didn't do. You walked with eggshells around the king, but the one thing you really didn't do was sleep with his wife or sleep with his concubine. Because that's basically saying, I don't respect you. I'm not scared of you. I'm more powerful than you are. You can't stop me from doing this thing that you really don't want me to do. So, you know, get out of my face. I'm, it's basically, it's a coup. This is another coup attempt from, on the part of Adonijah. It's kind of done through more diplomatic channels. So instead of just saying, we're going to have a big party saying I'm the king, I'm just going to ask Solomon to let me do this thing that basically means I'm the king and not, and not him. So verse 19, Bathsheba went to Solomon to speak with him about Adonijah, and he rose to meet her. He sat on his throne, and she said, uh, I have one small request to make of you. Please do not refuse me. And the king said, Make your request, mother, for I will not refuse you. And then verse 21, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. Verse 22, King Solomon answered his mother, Why do you ask for Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? You might as well ask for him the kingdom also. 
He's my older brother, and on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zeruiah. So she's like, you're not just asking. He didn't just ask you to ask me to let him marry Abishag because he likes her. He's trying to do, he's doing it again. He's trying to become the king again. He's just trying to do it a little bit more diplomatically and maybe a little bit in kind of a sneaky way. You might as well just ask for the entire kingdom because that's what he's really asking for. Verse 23, Then Solomon swore and said, God do to me and even more if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. So either I'm going to kill Adonijah or I'm inviting God to kill me. That's how, that's how bad this is and how bad it's gotten. As, as, therefore, as surely as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, who has made me a house and promised, Adonijah will be put to death right today. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Right? I'm not going to let Adonijah pull this again. Verse 25, so King Solomon sent Benaiah, the new, right, his kind of right-hand man, commander of his armies. King Solomon sent Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. So uh, Adonijah is dead. Next, Solomon moves on to Abiathar, who was Adonijah's priest that he had in his pocket. To the, to the priest, he said, uh, verse 26, go to Anathoth, your estate, for you, you, Abiathar, you deserve to die just like Adonijah did. But I'll not put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father, and you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that had been spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. So Solomon says to Abiathar, I should kill you. I'm tempted to kill you. Now I'm going to kill you. But you're fired. Get out of here. Beat it. Like, I don't want to see you ever again. Now, new, verse 26, news comes to Joab. So remember, the, the nucleus of the coup was Adonijah, Joab, and Abiathar. Adonijah's been killed. Abiathar's been fired and expelled. Joab's like, it's not looking good. All of the, all of the people that were right shoulder to shoulder with me have all either been killed or fired and sent into exile. I do not, look, I do not like where this is headed. So Joab fled to the tent of the Lord, and he caught hold of the, whole, of the horns of the altar. Same thing that Adonijah did back in chapter 1. So he holds on, and he says, I think I'm about to get killed. I'm going to hold on in the hopes that I don't get killed. Verse 29, Then it was told to King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and, and, uh, and he's beside the altar. And Solomon said to Benaiah, Go strike him down. Right? I don't care about these rules kill him. That dude is a bad guy. He deserves to die. My dad told me I'm supposed to kill him. Go ahead and kill him. So Benaiah comes to the tent of the Lord and he calls in. He says, Abi, uh, he says, Joab, the king commands you to come out. And Joab's like, nope, I know what's happening. I, you want me to come out so you can kill me. I'm not coming out there. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die right here. Right? Joab, come out. Like, and so then uh, Benaiah brought word to the king and said, I told Joab what you said, and this is what he said. Right? So Benaiah says, you're in trouble. Come face the music. Joab says, I'm not. I'm staying right here. So then uh, Benaiah goes back to David and says, I told him to come out, and he won't. And David says, or I'm sorry, goes back to Solomon. He won't come out. And, and Solomon says, well, then just kill him right then, because I got, I got no time for this, right? The Lord will bring back his, verse 32, the Lord will bring back 
his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father, he attacked and killed Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether. Verse 33, so shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and his descendants, and for the house and his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord. So Joab's a murderer. Go ahead and kill him. Don't, don't let him get off on a technicality from these weird rules that we have about running into the tent and hiding on the altar. Solomon says, go kill him. Verse 34, Benaiah uh, went up and struck him down and put him to death. And he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, verse 35, put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, in place, in, over the army in place of Joab, and put Zadok, the priest, in, in place of Abiathar. So, so yeah, so now at this point, those guys have been, Joab is dead, Benaiah is in his place, Abiathar has been expelled, and Zadok is in his place. He also has Nathan the prophet alongside of him. Now for Shimei, the guy who's throwing rocks, verse 36. Then the king sent and summoned Shimei and said, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and do not go out from there to any place whatsoever. The day that you uh, go out and cross the brook Kidron, you know for certain that you shall die. Your blood will be on your own head. So Shimei, he... Solomon kind of says, David promised that he wouldn't kill you. I never promised that, and I'm going to kill you, but I'm going to give you a chance to, like, fly into the... I'm going to put you on house arrest. You go back to your house. As soon as you cross the threshold, right, then I'm going to kill you. But, but if you stay there, and if you don't bother me, and if you kind of be, you know, stay to yourself, then maybe I will let you live. In verse 38, Shimmy says... What you say is good. My Lord the King has said, and so I will do. And he lived in Jerusalem as many days. Verse 39. But it happened three years later. Two of Shimei's servants ran away to Achish, the son of Makkah, king of Gath. And it was told to Shimei, behold, your servants are in Gath. That's a big, right? That's like, you know, it's like there's all, like, in, you know, corporations, like, it's like kind of a, They'll get mad if you poach one another's employees and stuff like that. Uh, servants represented a huge financial commitment and a huge chunk of kind of my earning power, my, my net worth, as it were. If a servant ran away, it was a big deal. And so Shimmy is like, all right, either I can let my servants go. They probably know that I can't chase them. But they're, they, I can either take a big hit financially and let them go, or I can try to go get them and hope that Solomon doesn't know that I've gone after him to come get him. And he chooses the latter, and he chooses poorly. So verse, 30, verse 41, when Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king summoned Shimei and said, hey, what's the deal, man? Did I, did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, know for certain that on the day that you go out to any place, you shall die. And you said, okay, I'll obey what you've said is good. Bro, what do, you, what do you want from me? Like, we had a deal. Why have you not kept your oath to the Lord and your commandment? Why have you not kept the commandment that I commanded you? And the king says to Shimei, oh, so he says, A, you're supposed to die. You're going to die. But B, just for what it's worth, it's not because you came, it's not because you left Jerusalem and went to go get your servants, although that was part of the deal. The real reason you're dying, verse 44, the king said to Shimei, you know, you know why you're about to die. You're about to die because you mistreated my father. Right? All the harm you did to my father, the Lord is going to bring back harm on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established 
forever. Verse 46. Then the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died, and the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. That's 1 Kings 1 through 2. The transfer of power from David to Solomon. The threats to Solomon's kingdom have been eradicated. Adonijah, the counterfeit king, is dead. Joab, the counterfeit commander, is dead. Abiathar, the counterfeit priest, is fired and gone. The new regime is now in place. Solomon, the new king. Benaiah, the new commander. Zadok, the new priest. Nathan, the prophet. The kingdom is established. The rule and the reign can begin. So the first two chapters are now set up for the next eight. uh, Verses 3 through uh, 11 are the reign of King Solomon. But, like I said at the beginning, how we're going to close, right? The, 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 the best way to understand and to feel the impact of First Kings, of the, of the person of Solomon, the reign of Solomon, the reign of David, and life in Israel in this moment, is to, is to read them, understand them in view of the, the unfolding story of Scripture, and specifically to view them in view of the foundational promises of God from back at the very beginning, Right? Genesis 3, humanity found themselves in need of a Savior, in need of a Messiah, in need of someone that was going to reconcile them back to God from whom they had been alienated, someone who was going to do battle with Satan on their behalf, impute his victory to the people of God, reconcile them to God, reverse the curse, and set things back the way they were meant to be before the fall. That's what we're waiting for as early as Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 6, it kind of looks like Noah might be that guy, right? The man that God has called to start fresh after the flood. Maybe it's Noah. Well, then Noah gets drunk and passes out naked in his tent. So it's probably not Noah. A few chapters later, maybe Abraham's going to be that guy. This is the, the God's man that he called to be the father of his people until he sleeps with another woman because he doesn't believe that God can keep his promises. Maybe Moses will be that guy. Right? The man that God has called to lead his people out of captivity, to speak God's word to him, to help to lead them to the promised land, maybe until Moses murders a guy and then fails to believe God's promises publicly in front of everyone. Looks like maybe David will be that guy. God's chosen, appointed shepherd king who protects them and provides for them and defeats their, their enemies. Maybe until he commits adultery, rapes a woman, and murders a guy to cover it up. So over and over and over, the Old Testament is constantly showing us these faint glimmers of men who might possibly, it looks like maybe they're going to you know, fulfill that role of Messiah, Redeemer that God promised us, but ultimately they fall short time and time again. And so First and Second Kings is a series of kings, uh, 20 kings of Judah, 19 kings of Israel, so 39 in all, and they all do the same thing. They all point back to the promises of God. God promised us a king. God promised us a judge. God promised us a shepherd. God promised us a Messiah. God promised us a redeemer, but they all fall short, right? The, the, the job of, of actually defeating Satan and sin and actually reversing the effects of the fall and actually restoring the people of God back into the presence of God so that they could live and, ex- and enjoy the life that they were created to live and enjoy. They all fall short of that task. 
until we see the one true king, right? The true son, right? Solomon is a son of David, as was Adonijah and Absalom and all these other guys, right? Solomon was, but, but he was not the true son of David, the Davidic king, the Messiah that has long been awaited and long been, been, been promised, right? All of these kings and all of these men in the Old Testament are all faint glimmers, faint reflections of who the Messiah is supposed to be until we get to the true king who himself is not a precursor. He himself is not a, an allusion to something else or someone else that's going to come later. He is the true king, right? The true good shepherd, the true son of David, the true king whose reign will never end. And so 1 Kings 1 through 2 is the story of Solomon's kingdom being established. Solomon, Solomon being recognized as the beloved son of his father, with whom his father is well pleased. Solomon being celebrated as the true king. The people of Israel bowing their knee to King Solomon and recognizing his authority and his kingship. Right? And then Solomon eliminating any threats, any rebels, any people who reject him, and any people who don't want anything to do with his rule and his reign. Solomon finds them, and he eliminates them, and he destroys them so that he can establish his kingdom and rule in righteousness and justice and give his people peace and security and prosperity. That's, that's Solomon. Which probably sounds a little familiar. In the book of Revelation, Jesus comes back. He's been recognized by his Father as the true King, the beloved Son, the one with whom the Father is well pleased. His eyes are shining like the sun. His, his, he's burning like fire. He's seated on a glorious throne. Revelation 19, it says, From the mouth of Christ comes a sharp sword with which will strike down the nations, and he will rule over them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is written, The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Revelation 20 says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. And the beast and the false prophet, they were thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Another book was open, the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up its dead. Death and Hades gave up their dead. Everyone was judged according to what they had done. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, chapter 21. Then I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God will dwell with them. They will be his people. God will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain forever and ever. The city has no need for a sun or moon because God himself is its light and its lamp. No longer will there be anything cursed because the throne of God, the throne of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will be no more need for anything because God will be their light and they will reign forever. So the book of Revelation is all about Jesus being recognized as the true Davidic king, the true Solomonic king, the, the true 
beloved Son of the Father who has pleased His Father and now rules and reigns over His people and rules and reigns with His people. Like Solomon, Jesus destroys his enemies, people that don't recognize his authority, people who don't want him to sit, people who want to sit on his throne instead of bowing before him as he sits on his throne, right? Solomon destroys them. Jesus, in turn, destroys those people who don't recognize his authority and who, who want to sit on his throne instead of him. And then Jesus, like Solomon, gathers his people to himself to live with him and enjoy his grace and to reign with him forever and ever. 1 Kings 1 through 2 is about David the king transferring his... It's about the, the establishing of the kingdom of Solomon in Israel. The book of Revelation is about the establishing of Jesus as the true king. The one to whom we owe everything. The one who died for us. The one who paid the penalty for our sin. The one who satisfied the wrath of God in our place. The one who then invites us to trust in him so that we can experience his grace and live with him under his righteous rule. Jesus Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the one that we owe our lives. Jesus is the one to whom we owe our worship. We owe him everything that we, that we have. And so our call, in light of First Kings, in light of Genesis, Revelation, right? Our calling as the people of God is to come before Jesus, bow our knee to him as our true king, worship him, and then give our lives to him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the king. You have been recognized by the Father and, and invited to sit at the right hand of the, of the Father, ruling in righteousness and justice. Jesus, we thank you that you are big enough and strong enough to overcome our enemies and to defeat Satan and sin on our behalf. We thank you that you will gather your people to yourself into your presence to rule over them forever. And Lord Jesus, we look to you we acknowledge you, we bow our knee to you, and we trust in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.